0: Bloomberg Audio Studios.
1: Podcasts, radio, news.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you
2: get your podcasts
0: or watch us live on YouTube.
2: In Washington, welcome to the Monday edition of Balance of Power. I'm Joe Matthew. We'll have Kaylee Lyons with us next hour here on Bloomberg Radio on the satellite and on YouTube where we invite you to join us every day. We're live on YouTube right now. Search Bloomberg Global News. That's what all the kids are doing. Kind of amazing uh, to see senators working on Super Bowl Sunday. It actually happened. They weren't there during the game, but they showed up when you were probably getting your guacamole and chips ready. And they did advance this bill. It hasn't passed the full Senate, but they had a procedural vote, and it went pretty well for those looking to help fund our allies in Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. 67-27. A lot of folks think this could pass the full Senate, and that would happen no later than Wednesday. And we're right back to where we were on Friday with the same question, what happens when it goes to the House? I guess it's a good thing, though, that they didn't have to, you know, get up early and go to work today, as I read on the terminal, that this is one of the least productive work days of the year because of the football game. Jack Fitzpatrick came to work. He's with us now from Bloomberg Government. You saw the game. You came in, right? I'm here. They say even those who will, because 16 million people will skip work today. The rest of us will be much less productive, apparently, because of the choices we made last night. I hope you're feeling okay.
3: And yet the Senate is actually going to work late. They, they can't vote until 8.30 or so, so yeah. they're working hard on Sunday and then they get working sleep late on Monday. In.
2: That is kind of a big deal, though, for Chuck Schumer to pull everybody together on a Super Bowl Sunday to make this happen. Would that suggest that it will pass the full Senate? I mean, the
3: fact that they've gotten 67 votes on two procedural votes at this point, uh, that may be more of a ceiling than a floor. People still could get upset if they don't get an amendment vote they were seeking, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But clearing 60 twice on two key procedural votes, uh, I mean, clearly this is moving slowly because there are members who won't give unanimous consent, but they look like they can get this through the Senate. Mm -hmm. The question then is also how much uh, momentum does it have going into the House? 67 is not 80 or 90. Fair enough. The House issues are still there.
2: Fair enough. Uh, Before we move to the House, there were questions last week about amendments, how that might slow things down, whether there might be some border-related provisions that are added to this. And then there was a man named Rand Paul uh, who wanted to, to to block this or slow it down to the extent that he could. Is that why we're not getting unanimous
3: consent? Yes. Rand Paul is at least one reason why we don't have unanimous consent. Uh, if you've got one person saying he's not going to agree, mm-hmm. it's kind of a moot point how many people aren't agreeing. So they're going through step-by-step Chuck Schumer has still said he would like an agreement on which amendments could get votes, but if there's not a unanimous consent agreement, it's unclear what the path forward is Mm -hmm. other than it's going to be slowed down and then they can force a final vote. uh, It looks like Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, do do they increase support between now and then? Is there a a rallying cry? Are there further amendment Mm -hmm. votes? Any way to improve it uh, from members' perspectives? That's what's unclear, because usually when they have an important Important Bill, they find a way to get unanimous consent and get everybody to agree on the slate of amendment votes. But that is not happening here.
2: Not going to happen. And when it goes to the House, knowing 18, I believe, Republican senators voted yes in this last round. Is that last one? I checked was 17, 17, a little back. a discharge petition in the House requires 218. I'm I'm comparing apples and oranges here, but you talked about momentum. You get 80 or 90. Are we in a world in which a discharge petition, I know this is wonky stuff, could actually work around Speaker Johnson if he doesn't want to bring this to the floor, and supporters who back it do?
3: I mean, first, a discharge petition usually is useful if the leadership wants an excuse to end huh. up supporting something. Got it. If you force their hand, and then they can say, oh, you oh, forced well. my hand. yeah. Um, the fact that there's been some pushback, or at least skepticism, uh, we talked last week about uh, Mike Rogers, the House Armed Services Chair, yeah. saying, if we don't have immigration deal and we don't, Mm -hmm. it's not clear how you can move this forward. There's not a huge push in the House right now from even the most supportive members. That's the big issue because if the leadership aligned and sort of neoconservative hawks of the party aren't making a major push, uh, the the options for a discharge petition are an uphill battle.
2: So it's entirely likely this thing passes the Senate and just goes nowhere after that then, right? That may be the
3: most likely option. It's hard to make a prediction here. Yeah. Again, how much momentum it has coming out of the Senate, how much pressure is put on leadership, mm-hmm. on key committee leaders like Mike Rogers and other people's, people who are supportive of this kind of bill. That's the big X factor here. But it is a much heavier lift in the House than it has been in the Senate, where it it's, you know 67 isn't way more than 60 they mm-hmm. need 60 mm-hmm. they're getting 67 mm-hmm.
2: again it's not 80 or 90 3 weeks to my count till the government shut down no one's talking about it i keep asking people about it like oh no they're going to figure it out but then it's going to be 2 weeks then it's going to be 1 week and what's going to happen
3: yeah it, it's easy to lose track of time because uh-huh. that is march 1st for the first partial shutdown deadline and then march 8th Uh, I've been asking consistently the subcommittee leaders who are supposed to write the bills to get this done. Generally, they say it's going pretty well, but the Mm -hmm. big hurdle is there's not a grand agreement to set aside major policy fights. Usually when they get an omnibus or some sort of means of funding the government, initially they say, all right, we're not going to legislate on abortion access or immigration or any of the other many really tough issues we're just going to do our best to agree to funding levels mm-hmm. they have not had that kind of conversation so any number of really tough issues could trip them up but what i've heard from members is they have not gotten tripped up yet and they're being productive
2: <laughs> all right optimism still alive great to see you jack i hope you uh, find a chance to recuperate at some point today they're working late like you said 8:30 tonight and Jack will be with them as always at Bloomberg government Congress reporter and a frequent voice on this program balance of power. Let's add the voice of Bill Hoagland. We wanted to go to the bipartisan policy center for a bit of a reality check in what's happening here because the two chambers don't agree. And of course, we can get inside divisions within the individual caucuses as well. But Bill's been watching this uh, for a, a couple of minutes, you might say, following his experience in the Senate. And it's good to have you back, Bill. I hope you've recovered from the game Uh not too often you see senators at work on a Super Bowl Sunday. Were you encouraged?
4: Yes, this was the first one. I I, uh, I, I believe it's the first time they've ever worked on a Super Bowl Sunday. But, of course, they uh, rejo- adjourned in time to at least see the uh, at least second half of the uh, Super Bowl, as I understand.
2: Hmm. Well, God bless them. Now they've uh, got some real work to do this week. Do you see this bill following... Uh, the procedural votes that have already occurred. And I know there are more to follow. They have to get the shell bill and do some other wonky stuff. Uh, uh, But when this reaches the floor, will it
4: pass? The Senate will pass this uh, supplemental. Uh, Likely, it'll have to go all the way to Wednesday. They're still trying to work out a set of amendments uh, and may not have any amendments. But the 30 hours uh, uh, post the uh, vote on Sunday will run out on Wednesday. And by then, uh, they will pass it. They're, it's clear it's going to go over to the House. Uh, now, the mm-hmm. question, as you've raised in your earlier comments about what will happen in the House is still very much up in the air. I think Mr. Uh, the new speaker is trying to figure out himself as to what strategy he wants to pursue. Um, I believe that there are clearly, if it was put to a vote in the House of Representatives, it would over, overwhelmingly pass. Uh, so there are uh, various approaches he could take, but I you mentioned one of them, which was a discharge petition. Uh, I think there yeah. will be the votes there for discard, discard, per, uh, petition subject to, uh, whether or not uh, the speaker has an alternative that he wants to bring it to the floor, but it will get, I, I'm truly expected to make it to the floor at some point. Now, the other option is for him to simply s- uh, strip it all out and send back the, uh, Uh, send it back to the Senate and the Senate amend it, and then Mm -hmm. it comes back. uh, So it will get there, I believe, at the end of the day, though it's going to take a little bit of a struggle. And of course, the Senate goes out here after they pass this uh, on Wednesday or whenever they get around to passing it, and they'll be out until uh, after uh, uh, for a week or another week and a half. And then, of course, this House is out for uh, President's Day recess starting next week for two weeks. So um, there's there's not a lot of time here to get to get this done, but uh, I, I am a I'm an optimist on this one today.
2: Hmm. Well, this is a familiar feeling, Bill Hoagland. He's with us from the Bipartisan Policy Center. Hope you can hear me a little bit better now, uh, Bill, because I want to ask you about Mitch McConnell. Really something watching him uh, try to push this legislation and also cope with reality at the same time and his frustration is pretty clear as he said to lament the commitment that has underpinned the longest drought of great power conflict in human history this is idle work for idle minds and it has no place in the u.s senate he's talking about what he refers to as how it's become quite fashionable to disregard the global interests we have as a global power is mitch mcconnell going to be disappointed at the end of this bill
4: the election is a driving factor uh, for policies, uh, decisions right now, an election year it always is uh, uh, difficult to get policy done. Uh, but uh, I, I am, I am, uh, I am rather discouraged as an old Senate staffer uh, that we're letting politics play such a big role in such things as the immigration bill last week, which was a bipartisan uh, effort on the part of uh, some good senators in the United States, both Republicans and Democrats, to bring something to the floor. I'm a little discouraged about uh, the uh, degree to which uh, the potential presidential nominee, Mr. Trump, is having such an impact upon policies right now when action should be taking place and we should be legislating and uh, putting off, at least until after the election, as to what the next policy should be. You think
2: we're going to have a government shutdown next month?
4: I uh, that's a that's a good question. I do think that we hit. Uh, we're we've already run out of time here. As I said, uh, that March uh, uh, that March first date is coming very quickly. Uh, at least on the four uh, four bills that have to be done by March first. Uh, at this particular moment, I'm. Uh, to anticipate, since there's very little that's happened in the way of actually acting on those uh, bills in the House and the Senate, that we're probably looking at another kicking of the can, uh, both Mm -hmm. on the March 1st and the March 8th. uh, Or, uh, again, I'm I'm one of those who really believes that a, a government shutdown, particularly in an election year, benefits no one. Uh, no political party. And so I do think we're looking at uh, another uh, continuation or re- resolution at least until the end of April when uh, uh, certain things start to really happen under the mm-hmm. new fiscal responsibility Act that was adopted last year, which means across the board cuts beginning uh, in April. So I do think they're going to try to uh, try to get this these bills done. But uh, it, they're not going to get them done by March the 1st right now, given the schedules that uh, uh, recesses and the president's recess and other things that are going on.
2: Donald Trump uh, has had a heavy hand over these negotiations without even being on Capitol Hill bill. To what extent do you think he'll impact a final product here when it comes to Ukraine specifically?
4: Well, I think we've already started to see the impact that he has had on uh, such things as the immigration bill last week uh, that was uh, brought to the floor. Um, I I believe that post uh, uh, Super Tuesday, when he should have, uh, if Mr. Trump does at that particular point, uh, uh, the former president have the uh, requisite number of electoral uh, votes locked, delegate locked, locked in. That uh, mm-hmm. it will now become basically his uh, policies for the rest of for Republicans uh, that are towing to his uh, uh, re-election. Uh, it will really make it very difficult to get uh, uh, any bipartisan work done here. Uh, keep in mind that uh, 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 we also have a situation here. Of course, as you know, we have an election tomorrow, uh, and, mm-hmm. and Mr. Santos's position being. Up for election. That, as uh, last time I looked at the polls, would indicate that that might uh, flip to a Democratic seat, uh, uh, which would really change the mod, change the uh, uh, make it even more difficult yeah. for Mr. Johnson to get work done. So, uh, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be an optimist. <laughs> but I can tell you right now that uh, uh, politics are really starting to dominate uh, uh, this. Uh, whole agenda, a legislative agenda for the rest of the year. And, and as one who still believes that we have to legislate even in an election year, this is very dis- disappointing mm-hmm. to
2: me. Yeah, it's hard to ignore. Uh, Bill Hoagland, great to see you, Bill. You're
0: listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg
2: 1130. Interesting reading the write-ups on the Trump-NATO comments this morning. Shudders, I read, across Europe, the way the Washington Post put it, tremors. The word they chose across Washington and in European countries already worried about America's reliability as an ally in a potential second Trump administration. This was in South Conway, South Carolina, where the former president made the remarks about countries paying their fair share, if I can use that phrase, to NATO. And he took it a step further. Here he is from South Carolina. Let's listen.
4: I said, you got to pay up. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want.
2: Whatever the hell they want, the line that is still echoing across Washington and European capitals. As we assemble our panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Jeannie, it's great to have you back. We missed you at the end of last week. This is the kind of stuff that Joe Biden is talking about, but if you read the polls, voters would suggest to you that this kind of talk doesn't matter. We saw this side of Donald Trump in a first administration. It doesn't seem to bother a lot of Republicans about a second one, does it?
5: It doesn't so far, but first of all, can we just clarify that NATO is not some kind of golf course where you pay dues. So right there, he is factually wrong. I'm not sure if that matters. Number two, the irony of this coming from a man who famously doesn't pay people in his own businesses and his vendors. So you know, so much of this just rings narcissism. But you get to the reality of the facts on the ground. And this is what he has been saying and promising for some time, this threat of moving us out of NATO, of weakening NATO. And that's why so many people, including the Wall Street Journal editorial page, are responding so forcefully. Because of course, from our founding, we have depended on allies to help us achieve our national security and economic goals. Without those allies, how do we combat China, for instance, in in the China Sea? How do we combat the Houthis in the Middle East? You know, we depend on allies. And, of course, how do we combat Putin as he tries to move into Europe? So we do have to take him at his word, even though factually it is wildly incorrect what he's saying.
2: Well, I have to be honest with you, Rick. I, I wonder if he even said it, right? This does sound like somebody who's showing off at a party trying to impress his friends. Yeah. I said, whatever the hell they want. I don't know what version of it was said, but when you draw a response from the secretary general at NATO, uh, you know, you're rattling cages here. Jens Stoltenberg says any suggestion allies will not defend each other undermines all of our security, including that of the U S what's your reaction?
6: Yeah, look, I think, yeah, Ian Stoltenberg has the right approach. Look, and I wouldn't worry about it so much, uh, these sort of hyperbolic things that Donald Trump says, except for the fact that he actually acts on them. I mean, you know, when he was president, he did cuddle up to uh, his favorite dictator, um, uh, Vladimir Putin. and, 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 And everything we've learned about him is that he puts our enemies ahead of our allies. And this is just another example of that. And he does it in tangible ways. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just, quote, like he likes to use, locker room talk. Uh, showing off at a cocktail party, but uh, the reality is it's borne out by our experience. And this is a lot different than in the old days of complaining that the UN doesn't use our funding successfully and that we ought to withhold it until they're more efficient. This is a security program based on all our self-interests. The countries within NATO protect one another and together they are a much more significant force than any of their individual economies or militaries. And so maybe he just doesn't understand the basic concept behind NATO, but the problem is if he doesn't understand it by now after being commander in chief for four years, then why in the world will we think he would abide by it in the future?
2: Nikki Haley was asked about it on Bloomberg this morning. Uh, Jeannie, she said it's a mistake for Trump to side with Putin over our allies. Isn't this a, a big opportunity for her as, as his former U.N. ambassador to draw a contrast?
5: It, it absolutely is. And, and you know, Joe Matthew, I'm surprised you don't believe that some, you know, leader of a big European country didn't stand <laughs> up and say, dear sir, Donald Trump, do you believe this? I mean, you know, from yeah. start to finish, this fake story is amusing if it wasn't so serious. And to your point, Nikki Haley does have an opportunity here to Make it clear. And this is what I think is missing in all of this is Donald Trump, as usual, is reflecting the view of a good segment of the Republican Party on the far right that has long been isolationist. And you can talk to people today. They don't you know, know about how much who owes what to where, but they do sure. have a question as to why, when we're suffering at home, our money should mm-hmm. be going abroad. And that is something that Nikki Haley and others in the Republican and Democratic Party, including our president, have got to explain. Why is it in our interest to send this money to help Ukraine in this fight? And they can start with the simple fact that NATO has like what over 50 percent of the GDP in the world, you know, so there are facts on the ground to support what we're doing. It's in our interest. But you can't expect people to know that if you don't explain it.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube.
1: It's been a week over the last week in which we've been very focused on domestic politics, but specifically the Senate's efforts uh, in the last over the course of last weekend, even through the first half of the Super Bowl to try to pass an aid package that's Mm -hmm. going to have funding not just for Ukraine, but also for Israel at a time where we're seeing things getting perhaps a little bit more contentious between Israel that's and right. the Biden administration with their handling of the ongoing yeah. war with Hamas in Gaza.
2: We heard from Benjamin Netanyahu on uh, Sunday morning, which was illuminating now mm-hmm. as the IDF turns to the south. And they go to Rafah, remember, we talk a lot about the Rafah gates that's right. right on the border with Egypt. It's a critical area. And that's where a lot of civilians had evacuated to.
1: Right. And where they're trying to get aid through.
2: Absolutely right, because the bombing was happening in the north. So this is creating uh, a potentially deadly situation. I guess dozens of civilians are said to have been killed already, but I haven't seen a hard number on that uh, from the government. I mentioned uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. He was on ABC News, uh, ABC this week with George Stephanopoulos talking uh, about the action in Rafa and the urging from the Biden administration, the urging for restraint. Here's what he said.
0: Well, Rafa is a, is a very small percentage of uh, Gaza, and I think it's about 10 percent or 15 percent. I mean, the uh, estimates— an are, area north of Gaza that has already been cleared.
2: Well, there's, there's an estimate 1.4 million people in that area right now. And, and as the, as the Germ- German that, foreign minister said, they can't, they, can't, they can't just disappear. Where are they supposed to go?
0: No, well, the, the areas that we've cleared north of Rafa, are, uh, plenty of areas there. But uh, we are working out a detailed plan to do so.
2: This is where we begin our conversation with Hagar Shamali, founder of Greenwich Media Strategies and a voice of experience uh, in the White House, as former director for Syria and Lebanon of the National Security Council. Hagar, it's great to see you. I wonder how concerned you are now uh, about this new direction that the IDF is taking to the South. Is it possible for them to protect civilians or create new humanitarian corridors at the same time?
7: it's difficult because they have a very short amount of time and what they want to do in rafa the reason they're going to rafa at all is because they weren't able to complete the operation that they foresaw in Khan Yunis. Khan Yunis is a Hamas stronghold in the south of Gaza. It was believed that that was likely where Hamas leaders were hiding. And they didn't find them, particularly Yahya Yehosh- Sinwar, who's one of the top Hamas commanders and who's believed to really be the mastermind between, uh, behind October 7. And so that's why they want to move on to Rafah. But the problem is they have uh, as you as as you've reported before 1.4 million i've i've seen numbers up to 1.5 million that is a significant number of gazans when you're talking about the total population of gaza being 2.2 million individuals so f- that means that the vast majority went into rafa squeezed down there as it is situation there is very dire they are in very in in conditions that are really not uh, clean not sanitary not uh, not 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 safe really not healthy for children and families and when you're talking about pursuing an operation and they need to pursue those operations quickly they've already started as we've seen today uh you don't mm-hmm. have time really to to, to move it's, it's a nice talking point to say don't worry. We're going to move everybody north, or we're going to move them to designated areas. The designated area that I saw in in Israeli press reporting was the size of Ben Gurion Airport, but there's no way that 1.4 million people can move easily to that area and fit in that area and be taken care of in a, in a in a in a in a dignified way. And so I'm very concerned that this is going to cause chaos. And and the U.S. government has said that both President Biden, the U.S. Yes. ambassador, have come out very clearly on this.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It seems Biden has sharpened in many ways his language around Israel and what it should do in recent days. And yet it doesn't necessarily seem that Bibi Netanyahu is hearing that message. We heard from him on the Sunday shows over the weekend. He also said those who say that under no circumstances should we enter Rafah are basically saying, lose the war, keep Hamas there. Is that effectively what the administration is telling Israel?
7: No, what the, you, you know, and, and I, I see when I heard that, and I thought that was not fair to say publicly because the Israeli government knows exactly what the US government is saying. And what the US is trying to say is listen, you have to prioritize your threats. And is this threat worth going after? And that's how, by the way, that's how the US pursues war. Is the threat going worth going after, given the collateral damage you expect to happen, given how many number of civilians you know will die, or given how what it will be like for these civilians who've who've, who've moved there to uproot yet mm-hmm. again and to go where exactly? You know, I I heard the Israeli government, I heard Bibi Netanyahu come out and he said today, I believe that that he agreed with the Americans, but again, I, I mean, I have to I have to. He agreed on uh, it's a very much a public talking point. He said he agreed on the protection of civilians and therefore they would continue going to Rafa, but that they assured everyone they would set up something very solid and stable for those uh, civilians there. But there is a reality to this and that is that it's 1.4, 1.5 million people. It's no joke. And they've already gone into Rafa. And so the U.S., what they're trying to say is, is this threat really worth it? And I'll give you an example of that. When we had our war against ISIS and we defeated ISIS, that nobody can, can, can question that. ISIS fighters still exist. We know that. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to go every single after every single cell, after every single fighter or battalion to defeat, to actually have a tactical victory. And you have to weigh the pros and cons and the benefits of of, of each of each operation. And that's what the U.S. is saying is that this one, as to quote President Biden, was over the top. That's exactly what he said, and that's what mm-hmm. he meant.
2: regard two Israeli men who were held hostage uh, for. Well, months at this point, going back to October 7th, uh, were rescued last night. That headline seems to have been obscured by the rest of what we're talking about. I wonder what that tells you about the potential for other special forces raids like this to get other hostages out if there is no ceasefire.
7: Um, You know, I'm glad you mentioned how that news has been drowned out because there are a lot of headlines will have have been focusing they'll say there was this operation where dozens were killed and a lot of the headlines are missing yeah. that that there were two hostages released in this in this raid in an apartment where they were found um which is just fantastic news it's great news that they found them um and that they released them and it it boosts morale and hope for a lot of these families mm-hmm. of course and for the for the military to pursue similar operations the 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 fact is It will be hard to release the remaining, and there are about 130, estimated to be about 130. And we saw news uh, last week saying that about 50 have have likely died, and that's coming from the Israeli government. It will be very difficult, unfortunately, to release the the remaining in raids. If you just look at the history, they they were only able to release actively release one hostage before this. Yeah. Um, and the other hostages have, have gone through the prisoner hostage prisoner swap. And now now to that point, those talks continue. Even though you saw headlines last week saying that Netanyahu rejected Hamas's latest counter offer, that's typically how these how these negotiations go. Israel so had you offer, still have Hagar so
1: hope hope that a deal like that can be made despite Israel's pushback?
7: Yes, I do have hope for a few reasons. First, because the talks we do know continue. In fact, Hamas sent a delegation to Cairo to continue to follow up on their counter proposal. So that's that's one. And their counter offer did not include a demand for a permanent ceasefire it it would include a permanent ceasefire, a demand for a permanent ceasefire to release all the hostages. But anyway, I digress. So that's one reason, talks continue. The second is that they, the Hamas and the Israeli government face a lot of pressure on both sides domestically, on the Israeli side to prioritize the release of hostages and on the Hamas side to end this war altogether. And most Gazans have said, well, at least those that we've seen, who have been in the streets saying, just release the captives. They tie the two together. And that is a correct uh, assertion to tie the two together. So they're both facing this this ongoing pressure. And you've seen them in the past agree to the principle of a ceasefire and hostage prisoner swap. So there's no reason it can't happen again. But you have to understand that from the Israeli government side, they do believe, and a lot of US generals agree with this, that this continued, um, the continued aggression and, and what you're seeing from the Israeli side, this brutal campaign, that it also further increases the pressure on Hamas to move toward a deal. And so that's also why you see that strategy from the Israeli government side.
2: Hagar, it's great to see you. She's the founder of Greenwich Media Strategies. Hagar Shamali, we appreciate your expertise always when you join us here on Bloomberg. Nick Wadhams is with us now as we add the voice of our national security team leader. He's with us at the table. Uh, and it's good to see you, Nick. Thanks for joining. Did you see Donald Trump in South Carolina over the weekend?
8: I did. I'll leave it at that. Yes. I'm uh, going <laughs> to let our
2: listeners and viewers have a taste, and we'll have you respond. This is the comment on NATO, of course, and whether our allies are paying their fair share or something like that. Here's Donald Trump from South Carolina.
4: I said, you got to pay up. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia— will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want.
1: Encourage, Yes. not just allow, actively encourage Nick is something else entirely. What has the response (laughs) been in the national security community here in Washington to this?
8: Uh, The response has been as you would Predict uh, some uh, exasperation, horror. I mean, listen, though, you, you do, there are a couple of things about this that we have to take into account. One is, is this actually true? Did this conversation right. actually Thank happen? You. Which is not 100% clear. We, Does, I mean, we know that Donald Trump for a long time has been extremely skeptical of NATO. Yeah. Uh, there was a big NATO meeting in 2018 where he made a lot of threats and really threatened to blow things up, but then came around. Uh, but certainly, we'd never heard anything like this before. But we are still in the process of trying to figure out whether this is an anecdote where he maybe went a little bit too far to whip up the crowd, or... Mm. I, 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 he would I, never do that. I, you know, even, <laughs> you know, we there were a lot of things we thought would never happen that did end up happening. So we're still <laughs> trying to sort this out. It feels a little bit more of a campaign thing than mm. something that... Donald Trump would, would actually encourage Russia to do, but, you know, there's a lot of concern around his, his uh, what he's saying to, uh, around Russia and Ukraine, and this
2: certainly feeds into that bigger narrative. Yeah. Jens yeah, Stoltenberg is acting like he said it, uh, but, you know, maybe that's not the point. The language and the coverage, I find interesting, sent shutters across European capitals, tremors across Washington. This is Donald Trump. What did people think they were? Doing? Right. I mean, that, well, that's the other thing, and I think you will
8: find that yes, there is uh, anger, unease, exasperation mm-hmm. in European capitals. But they have known for some time that he is the front runner among Republicans. They know exactly what he thinks about NATO. Uh-huh. They also know that if he wins, he would not be there for more than four years, uh, which is an interesting angle because it makes you think, well, could he, he you know, (laughs) could he, well, you know, that's a whole other question. You can get into that (laughs) that tomorrow. But would he, four years is something that they could potentially endure. If they're not looking at eight years of Donald Trump and this kind of thing, it's like, well, if we put our heads down for four years, and let's not forget that he was a real ally in a lot of ways to, places like Poland, Mm -hmm. US troop presence in Europe actually increased in in some places Mm -hmm. during his presidency, so it's a mixed track record.
1: Finally, Nick, just in our last 90 seconds with you, we also got some news over the weekend that the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is in the hospital again. He actually announced it this time, but he's in critical care now for a bladder condition. Do we have any idea how long he may be out of the mix as we deal with all of these geopolitical conflicts around the world? Because Kathleen Hicks is in charge right, right now, right? Right.
8: He transferred authorities. Uh, we do not have any sense. Uh, you know, the, the real question we're trying to figure out here is obviously when he, the first go around when he was hospitalized for two weeks, he would. Did not disclose it. He did not. He was very opaque, uh, wanted to guard his privacy jealously. It created a a huge uh, amount of concern. This time around, we're still trying to figure out how serious is it? Is this something that could be a bigger health issue that would really affect his ability to do the job? Or are they just being very careful and making sure that, you know, everybody in full transparency and stuff like that? We're trying to sort it out. But certainly, if he's going back to the hospital, that suggests that the health issues he had in
2: January have not been resolved. And that's going to present a great many questions. We hear a lot about chain of command. I'm sure the Pentagon and its briefings will be emphasizing that point. That's right. Today, today. at 2.30. We'll 2.30. have some Pentagon fun questions briefings. for Pat Ryder, I suspect, exactly. <laughs> uh, Because the timing here is everything, Kaylee. which is I'm sure why you asked it. Uh, considering the fact that we're involved in repeated airstrikes now
1: yep. against
2: foreign entities, never mind what's happening in Israel and Ukraine, this is a real story.
1: Absolutely. And of course, we're seeing perhaps the secretary learned his lesson from last time about making sure we all know Hmm. that story as it's happening versus learning the details later.
2: Nick Wadhams will get a day off someday. He (laughs) runs our national security operation here in the Bloomberg Bureau. We always know he's here, which is why he joins us here on Balance of Power. We thank you, Nick, as always. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lines. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.